This is Developer Stories, where we ask you why you built it, and we look behind the scenes of some of tech's passion projects and people. Welcome to the show. You're in the right place. Welcome to Developer Stories. I'm Vanessa Socket, and joining me today is someone I am so excited to introduce, the Executive Director of the Office of Research Computing and Data at MIT, this person has decades of experience building and supporting HPC centers, has spanned academia and industry, and is a prominent voice in our community. I would like to introduce the Grandmaster of Scientific Computing, the one and only Dr. Cuff. Woo! James, <laughs> welcome to the show. <laughs> Bless you, Vanessa. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm blushing, but uh, gosh, yes. <laughs> so just to check, would you prefer to be called James or Dr. Cuff? I think James is entirely appropriate. Thank you. <laughs> Alrighty, James, so let's get started. I want to first ask you a little bit about your developer story. So I know that you graduated from the University of Oxford after studying molecular biophysics. And then it looks like you sort of started out doing research and slowly moved up into leadership. Can you take us back to that time and walk us through that journey? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's, a, it's like all sort of stories. Um, one, one would have wished that it, it had been planned. There's no direct path from the beginning to the end, but I'll, I'll try and help sort of navigate through maybe some of the landmarks. And so it, it was interesting. I, I finished my PhD and, and worked in a startup company. Professor Janet Thornton, actually Dame Janet Thornton, had a company that was comparing all known proteins. And we needed an awful lot of computers to be able to, to do that comparison. I really started to kind of get that bug for scaling computer systems to be able to solve difficult problems. Really strange turn of events, and Michelle's name will pop up throughout this story. She got some money to do this thing called annotating the human genome. And it turns out that you need even more computers for that. And in, and in classic sort of academic funding models, the money to do the annotation was in place, but we, we hadn't really thought about who was going to do the computational aspects. And so, so at that point, I was able to work with Michelle and you and Bernie and teams at the Sanger Institute to effectively build these big computers. And you mentioned leadership, Vanessa. I mean, you know, nothing's planned. I was in a porter cabin outside of the Sanger with a little piece of Ethernet trying to build these clusters. And it was quite cute day one when we took delivery of the first tranche of machines. The rest of the systems folks came to help me unpack. And this was the day and age where you unpacked the CD-ROM drives and you tried to strip them down to rack them up and so forth. A few days passed and the next delivery came and I was sort of on my own on the loading dock thinking, I'm going to need more people. <laughs> this, this isn't going to scale. And I was just really lucky that we had good leadership around us that were able to help us find folks. And so Guy Coates and Tim Kutch joined me. You know, it's it's interesting what was leadership then. We we were a team, right? I mean, it was everyone just trying their best. There wasn't management coaches. There wasn't, you know, a path to leadership. We were just in it. Things sort of changed as the career moved on. And things got a lot more serious. Certainly, as I moved to the United States, I had to 
learn a different style of communication, <laughs> albeit we use English. It was interesting. I guess to just sort of summarize to answer your question, like, I don't think there's a right way to do this. I think it's important that you effectively mirror the project you're involved with. And if it's chaotic putting computers together for a project that was incredibly important such that we could annotate the human genome and have it free and encumbered from patents, that's one style of management versus maybe at a much more sort of prestigious university where if it goes wrong, you're in the newspapers, it's a very different style of management. Does that help? Yes, that definitely helps. And it sounds like when things get more serious, you're taking on a lot more responsibility. And then you're also accountable for if something goes wrong. You're the person that people go to to say, hey, hey, James, what happened here? You know, what, what's the story? Yeah, no, it's exactly that. And as both budget and financial responsibility go up, and certainly in a world where you're responsible as the kind of custodian of data and research product, it's incredibly important that you take this very, very seriously. You know, there's a, a challenge when you consolidate data and resources, you by definition become much more responsible for it. And so, you know, the last 25 years or so have been a, an evolution really of increasing responsibility, but also, you know, trying to make sure it's still not miserable. It has to be fun. We have to get up each morning and enjoy doing the work that we do and empowering teams to be able to be the best that they can with minimum amount of encumbrance and policy and process. We're still innovating, right? We're not we're not running a bank, right? We're, we're doing research. We're helping researchers. We're trying to do that within certain kind of boundaries. This is a really interesting discussion because my sort of perception about leadership is based on my interactions with my peers and with my managers. And you have these discussions like, oh, what next step do you want to take? Do you want to go on the manager track or this other track? But the way that you're describing it, it's like it's sort of you stumbled into it. It happened to you. And then it was like a slow progression and you took on more responsibility. When you look back, was this was this a welcome change? Was this the direction that you wanted? Or was it more of like someone needs to step up and take this position? And I think I can do it. Yeah, it, it was probably less of the latter. I think it was just a reaction of scale. As the jobs got more complicated and bigger, you started to realize that you, you couldn't just sort of wing it anymore. And, and I must admit, you know, bless the prestigious universities that I've worked with, they gave great support, you know, phenomenal HR. I, you know, was given executive coaching and uh, we had processes to make sure I, you know, you don't slip up. But the, this this whole dual track of, you know, oh, you're an, you're an engineer or you're a manager. I, I always struggle with, I think Sun had a very nice way of, of doing this. It, I mean, nothing's perfect, but they were able to treat highly qualified senior engineers within their organizations in the same way as they treated VPs of product or folks that were responsible for lines of business. And I, I think that's a really compelling and, and as, as we're evolving our research engineering portfolio, there's a whole career track that needs to reflect the experience of non-line management managers because you're you're still managing either a complex software product or a huge consortium or a community. And those tools and techniques are effectively the same. That's my sort of view on that. I don't know if that's contentious or not, but I, I value the research scientist and the research engineer. The fancy job title isn't important. It's the role that you play within the institute or the company. 
And you mentioned something earlier that I think is hugely important, but often underlooked, and that is fun. So looking back on your years of experience, what do you think is sort of some recipe or secrets? How do you ensure that people are having fun? I think back to the human genome days, it was, I think, what is now termed sort of radical candor, but we were just so transparent, whether it was a computer system malfunction, runaway code, we were really transparent and were able to adapt and move quickly. It gets harder as you build bigger organizational structures for how to get the message out when things are going, you know, good, bad, or indifferent. The other part of the fun is light touch process, right? I mean, the thing I realized early on when we were building the Odyssey system at Harvard was we didn't have a ticketing system. People were just mailing us. And it was great, but it just stopped scaling really, really quickly. And that became not fun. Uh, in fact, it became very much not fun. And as, as dull as a ticketing system sounds, it turned out that actually allowed us to have more fun because we were able to prioritize things and make sure the work got done so that folks weren't, folks' expectations of service were mapped and managed. And I, I still can't believe I'm saying ticket systems are fun, but they had, they enabled some breathing space, if nothing else. So before it was like, send in your tickets via carrier pigeon, message owl, or old school bail. <laughs> yeah, it was, there was very little structure. The the team that uh, we assembled at the beginning to to build this, I mean, it was a, we were a ragtag bunch of, you know, astrophysicists and chemists and what have you. And, and, and we, we made great progress, but there was a time when we realized, wow, we should, we should probably formalize this at least a little bit. <laughs> The ragtag bunch. I really love that sort of visual. <laughs> One interesting note for what you just said is that sometimes to make things more fun, it's not about necessarily identifying what you could proactively do to make it fun, but proactively do to reduce things that are not fun. I think that's yeah. a valuable insight. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that's the, that's part and parcel of it. I mean, we we also often in giant shared high-performance computing environments where you've got many stakeholders and many customers, it's really hard to sort of measure, like, have we done a good job, right? I mean, and we're constantly sort of struggling with metrics and ROIs, there's whole fields of studies on this. But I think it was always it was always nice to be able to get the, the sort of the delightograms from our, our research faculty and the folks that we were supporting. I think in the, in the light of day-to-day -day business and scientific computing, we sometimes forget to sort of stop and say thank you. And it's very, very hard. And, and also to realize that, and this is what gives me great heart for our, our endeavors back from ACIRF and RSE and all these lovely acronyms that we've come up with. We're professionalizing the operation of, of scientific computing support. And I'm seeing this being reflected in the in the faculty that we're, we're running these core facilities and we're, we're respected for the craft that we do to do this, whether it's you know, compiling the latest greatest system or installing some exotic uh, hardware, you know, all the way down to, you know, fixing a broken file system. I mean, it, it, we're, we're becoming, as research computing specialists, more of a sort of a utility. And I, I think that helps raise the bar for everybody. That takes me back to my days in research computing. And I had this insight that when you're in this kind of service industry where people usually come to you, they usually file a ticket when like something is wrong and they've been debugging it for a while and they're in like a bad mood. And that's hugely different from, for example, when you're in a lab and you're maybe even doing the same work, but you're sort of a member of the team. 
or to go way back to one of my early jobs. I worked at an ice cream shop. Like no one is ever going to come to an ice cream shop and be ornery or be upset there. It's going to be the opposite. It's going to flip their mood. So the challenge it seems is like, how do you turn this very service oriented industry where people come to you generally when they have a problem, how can you flip that into sort of a positive experience? And then like you, you said, get these delightograms and figure out when people are generally happy because people that are happy with how things are going, maybe, maybe you don't hear from them at all. That's absolutely right. I mean, and and it's this balance also of rolling out new services that that, that can cause delight. So, you know, I guess it, in our community, open on-demand, removing friction, these new graphical low-friction desktops to be able to get access to supercomputing without having to have a 30-year-old, you know, gray beard interface to get after it is so important. And I think there's a lot of technology now that gives me great heart that we can deploy behind the scenes that allows consuming of computer cycles, which is the sort of the end part, but without the misery of having to hack through, you know, various two and three letter obtuse Unix commands. And I, I see a lot of progress there. And it, it will always be the case that no good deed goes unpunished, right? But, but uh, I, I see hope in what we're we as a community are building to help people get access to compute with minimum pain and indigestion. James, you just gave the perfect lean in. So we're doing a new thing on the podcast. It is called, why did you build it? And you just mentioned building things. So when you look back to, I don't know, the last kind of set of projects that you, and when I say projects, I don't just mean like software or tools. It could be a community initiative. It could be an idea. It could be an organizational thing. When you look back, what kind of one project or thing do you want to talk about? And what I'm interested in is what it is, why you built it, and who it was for. Oh, so so many. Let's take a real tactical one, which I had a personal sort of feel for. So one of the challenges we had at Research Computing at Harvard was engaging with our community. It's a giant place. There were tens of thousands of accounts. It's, it's really hard. The, ticket system and all of that kind of thing. I'll, I'll keep going on this thread. And I I found there was this thing called a chat service, which now when you look back, it's kind of hokey, right? But we built this little thing that was on the web page where our community could talk directly to our research scientists in research computing. Of course, because it's James, I, I wanted to brand it. So the computer cluster was called Odyssey. We called it Oddibot. Our staff got a logo and we, we had a party. We made little blue colored cocktails that mirrored the logo. We had a ton of pizza. I remember standing up to demonstrate it. And uh, we had a, one of our colleagues was through in another room pretending to answer the questions. Uh, of course, I demonstrated it and, it and it didn't work, which was just beautiful, right? So there's you know, hundreds of people in this big atrium and and so we said, well, you know, it, it will work and people will be able to re reply to this. But the, the reason I built it was about outreach and that that sort of party and the ability to be able to feel like people have a, a line to even when they're far, far away. This was pre-pandemic, pre of course, right? Well, our way of being online has changed. The thing was, is it was so simple. I mean, I made this giant fuss about it. We had stickers for your laptop, you know, <laughs> we had websites and all sorts of stuff. I also want to do it as a, as a caveat, as a sort of a, a, a cautionary tale. 
Um, the team have subsequently uh, sunset that service because it kind of subverts the very methodical way of, of putting requests into a research computing organization. And so folks would tend to use the, use the chat service as a way to sort of escalate their requests. And I think that's a, a great one of like unintended outcomes of technology where you, you really feel like it's going to be a great thing for the community. And we threw the parties and we put effort and energy behind it and, and realized that I built something that was probably had unintended consequences that probably really wasn't the best of ideas. And, and so I still always want to kind of recapture the very essence and spirit of Audibot. Uh, long live Audibot as a concept, uh, maybe not as an actual service offering. But uh, I, I think it's a, it's a fun one to share because not everything you do always works out quite according to plan or has some unintended uh, outcome. There are many others, but I just find that one pretty kind of comical. The road to hell is paved with the good intentions, and that that particular one was uh, was was a fun one. But whilst it lasted, I personally got great fun out of people being able to fix their problems quickly. A lot of that is now transmogrified into Slack channels, and there's other technologies that have taken the the place of dearly beloved Audibot. Uh, rest in peace. <laughs> Long live Audibot. We will forever remember you. And, you know, I don't get, like you said, I don't think it was such a terrible idea because things like Slack, Mattermost have just totally exploded and taken over and especially yeah. in our remote age. And that's a really good point about we get these unintended consequences, but actually we learn quite a bit sometimes when we make a quote mistake that maybe is like a, a tech horror story, but actually helps us grow as engineers and people. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, and, and there's a, a litter of those small missteps, but no one was harmed in the making of the movie, right? <laughs> no Audibots were harmed. No Audibots or HPC administrators were harmed in the making of this tool. Exactly. Batteries not included. <laughs> Sound effects may include frustration with HPC and other various crying incidents. <laughs> Excellent. Love it. One thing that this conversation also brings to mind is like different kinds of tooling. So when you look at what people sort of focus their energy on, what funding initiatives support, do you think there's an emphasis on a particular kind of tooling or maybe not enough emphasis, for example, on things that might directly help people or developers? The one thing I've learned is scientific computing software is incredibly complicated and not getting any easier the layers of software you need to be able to even function now is so complex. We have technologies to be able to sort of wrap and encapsulate these tools and, and deliver them into to hostile places through containerization and through, you know, build systems that, that are able to reproduce computing. I think that the new era of computational provenance and reproducibility is going to be such an important thrust for any center director. Um, no longer is it standing up a copy of CentOS, maybe getting Slurm running and firing off a few, you know, compiled C binaries. When I look at friends and colleagues in artificial intelligence, in particular, trying to be able to run incredibly complex workloads with huge data sets, uh, the unsung heroes of scientific computing are the, the software builders and the software packages. For the longest time, Linux was incredibly difficult to run and build. It involved 
floppy disks and, and injury. And it was interesting. I'm seeing the, the rise of packaged Linux, Slackware and Red Hat sort of back in, in my day to much more easy ways to consume scientific software, things like EasyBuild and SPAC and Flux Frameworks and, and, and so forth as being a, a really huge part of how we're going to be successful to manage the chaos and this explosion of software products. Uh, we're writing, I mean, you, you just have to look at a, a GitHub or a GitLab or any of these uh, software repositories. We're writing so much more software now and we're writing it very, very quickly. Heck, we've even got you know, artificial intelligence engines to help us write more software and moving aside the sort of the, the ethics and com com conflictions of that, we're going to live in a world of ever expanding software. And so from a point of view of managing the scientific computing output, getting our arms around computational provenance from the algorithm, the data and how it was executed, I, I think is one of one of the new challenges moving forward. And certainly, you know, it, as I'm starting to see line of sight in my new job, when you're working in an engineering school, just multiply all of what I've said by like, you know, 10,000. <laughs> How do you keep up with the pace of technology? So the fact that you build these ginormous expensive clusters and then they're deprecated like, I don't know, four to five years later. It really does make me sad how quickly we turn over hardware. I've spent a lot of time in environmental concerns, building green high-performance computing centers, making sure that they're on sustainable fuel sources and energy sources, uh, making ca careful use of outside air for cooling, all the sort of engineering aspects. Um, the energy that goes into manufacturing a computer is obscene. We build them at massive scale. I've built big computers, but there are far, far bigger computers. The national capability machines and the grand challenge machines are huge. My overarching concern is that I want to make sure we get the most amount of science as practically possible out of what is effectively a finite resource. As you say, they don't last forever. They're often running at very high tolerances. The failure rates on large systems is still unacceptably high. Uh, you know, there's a, an old uh, sort of Latin description of a of a legion that had lost 10% of its capacity was said to be decimated. And it wasn't that it was destroyed. It was just the decimated means that, you know, 10% of it's gone. And we're starting to see clusters that have failure rates. So we tend to, you know, lift and shift and, and replace that entire resource. I think it's a, a huge, huge challenge. Everything from our electric vehicles that we were going to have lithium challenges just mining and finding enough raw materials to manufacture these devices is something that you know I would say I lose sleep about but it's it's definitely fourth of mind of like how to build systems that have like enough length of time enough wall clock on them to be able to get the most out of them one thing that gives me great hope is when you do centralize these systems you are able to actually get you know, a good amount of runtime out of them. And if you can then carefully pack those systems with good quality schedulers that keep the machines busy and that you don't have machines that are sitting idle and just, you know, aging in place, you know, you can actually get more out of them. And I, and I think that's also an important thing in terms of 
research computing management and back to that early conversation about leadership like you you really do have to manage these resources because we live in a world of finite resources and it does concern me so thank you for bringing that up i i wish i had much better answers i also know that you have to be very transparent on the real costs of, of what we're doing here both you know socially and, and and economically and i think it's very difficult for certain industries to maybe expose the true costs of their their computing because at the at the hyperscale level you are in a competitive business and so so i think that's it's going to be a challenge to be able to see the truth of what's going on there I totally agree. I think the culture tends to be wanting to be the biggest and the baddest and to reveal vulnerabilities or even just say that your center or your resources are are not as efficient as they were before is it brings you down a little bit. I guess it's funny you're, you're describing this. I'm thinking of, okay, HPC resources are kind of like oranges and we just need to squeeze out as much juice as we can and we don't necessarily want to stop drinking orange juice. We just need to maximize the orange juice that we get out of those oranges. Yeah, I think it's a it's an important part. These are privileged resources to gain access to. There's a there's a reason why a lot of the high performance computing centers, you know, live in traditionally highly research intensive organizations. And those resources we should be aware of as being finite. I think that's also comes back to software that running, let's say, elderly software methods. Uh, on the latest machines without being able to look to see if there are opportunities to enhance the time that that algorithm stays on core because that's where its its peak energy usage is is incredibly important and I you know I, I'm a big personal fan of low energy computing uh, my house is full of Raspberry Pis carrying out on natural acts of computing that they probably weren't designed for. But, uh, you know, I I have one eye to the my own residential energy bill. And I think the more that that actually gets pushed up at a national scale, that we have an open and frank discussion about the energy. I think this winter, it will be very interesting for center directors to keep one eye on the, the little spinning wheel and the electric meter. Totally agree. So I want to talk a little bit about the technologies, the projects, the things that you're excited about for your new role. But first, I do want to talk about another journey that you recently went on that I'm very curious about. James, you are amazing because you essentially retired and then you came back. So I don't know, I could make assumptions that it got boring or was just too early to do it, but I'd really like to hear your your take on what that venture was like, what you learned and how it guided you to this new role. Yeah, thanks. For that. I, so early retirement was really around a, a movement that it's, it's lovingly called FIRE, free, independent, retire early community. It's often a, a way for folks to be very frugal in how they uh, live their, their lives. It turned out Michelle and I were effectively FIRE candidates before ever even really understanding what it was. We had privileged positions. We had good jobs. We didn't have a family. We were able to save. I grew up, you know, the, the son of a waitstaff and a storeman. You know, I wasn't in the world of high finance or, you know, never seen sort of a large remuneration. So we sort of fell into it. Um, and Michelle said, you know, we've done good stuff and we had, and I, I wanted to 
you know, really sort of take a little pause. We found a great number two to be able to run Harvard Research Computing. Uh, Michelle was starting her painting endeavors, and she's now a you know pretty well qualified watercolor artist and an educator. And I personally really really enjoyed not having to go to work. It was it was fantastic. We fixed the bathroom. We worked out to lay tile, <laughs> chop down trees, and do all sorts of things. But I started to sort of kind of get a little itchy, and it wasn't it, it wasn't itchy about my like a loss of identity through my job. I started to realize like, I actually really miss the community. And so I was able to have the luxury of being able to work in technology journalism, where there are literally hundreds of dollars to be made in that business. So it wasn't a financial endeavor. Um, it was very much just, you know, being able to sort of re-engage. And then series of sort of conversations with data centers and, and startup companies, I realized that I had some value in terms of, you know, being able to work with the community and work on great projects. I had a, a phenomenal time with Simon Ada at Code Ocean working on data provenance and algorithm reproducibility and putting that into a, a bioinformatics and genomics context. Uh, I had a great time with um, uh, Steve Litster at the Market Group, which is a, a data center, but he was the CTO and we were building dedicated shared HPC resources. You know, again, back to what I was saying earlier, there was no plan, Vanessa. It was, it was just not thought through. I think the, the sort of the quotes financial freedom allows you to be able to take on challenges that you wouldn't have, have done before. And so that sort of career path was sort of unintentional. And then in the summer, you know, situations vacant. And I realized at that point, the Office of Research Computing and Data was kind of the destiny. And again, unplanned, but, you know, started having the conversations with the leadership. And we're now great tenure of two weeks into the job. So we're now building what I think is going to be a very compelling academic research computing endeavor. Very, very different to any other job I've had before, but with threads of similarity kind of weaved through it. Ah, oh, your destiny. I absolutely love that. So James, what are you excited about? What are you building in this new role? Yeah, there's, there's a lot to be excited about. So MIT really is a very special place. And I say that honestly, because Michelle and I were brought over actually by MIT. We were working for what became the Broad Institute. I learned early on in, you know, sort of 2003 or so that there's something very compelling about MIT. I currently going through a fairly obsessive amount of tweeting of little pictures of things I find. And I, I keep having to pinch myself that most of what we do, including this conversation and the internet and computers and shared systems, were all kind of invented and co-invented within the walls of that establishment. And so I, I do sort of pinch myself on a, on a daily basis. What that means is that the organization is ferociously independent. The research faculty are the best in their game at technology and innovation and able to bend computers and computation to their will to solve really knotty, hard problems and challenges for science and you know for humanity. And it's different than anything I've ever really done before. And to that end, this is a, a new office. It reports up through the vice president for research. It, it's a grown-up job, no shadow of a doubt there. And also it has a history and a heritage. Chris Hill has been building what was called the Research Computing Project, 
and that kind of gives you a clue. It, and in true MIT fashion, it was, you know, a, an independent effort. There was money sort of scrabbled together. And in spite of all of that, Chris and his team have built, you know, amazing facilities. But in the true sort of MIT spirit of just-in-time engineering, you know, getting it done. And it's remarkable. And so what I'm excited about bringing is that sort of engineering spirit and mindset and not to be too dull, but sort of, you know, kind of professionalizing that organization such that it's the, the go-to place for folks within the MIT community and beyond who need access to good quality, high quality, professional research computing. And it's easy for me to say, it's extremely difficult to be able to execute. Resources come from a variety of different sources. It's very hard to build systems that are scalable and can support a very heterogeneous research community. I've had a little experience of doing it at what I now jokingly say, the, the liberal arts college down the road, and we had great success there. And it continues to be a kind of a, a hallmark of, you know, uh, research computing activities. I'm also excited to just re-engage with the community. It's been so great through social media to find old friends and people are, you know, joking, oh, you're back, you know, and so and so forth. It was an opportunity that I just, I had to apply for the job. I did a ton of interviews. I'm so blessed and fortunate to have been selected. I mean, you know, there's, there are a lot of people in the world who could have a go at this. And I'm, I'm glad to be named as the inaugural director and sort of sleeves rolled up and, you know, hitting everything from, you know, what may sound boring, but like research compliance and data and controlled unclassified information and understanding how we can build a much better mousetrap to be able to support our researchers and, and also to sort of get back to my real support roots. Um, my boss, a gentleman named Professor Peter Fisher, is a you know, world-class physicist. He has 27 years tenure at MIT. I'm, I'm also learning something you know, basically every day or every half day from the cast of characters that make up the community. And so, yeah, from an excitement perspective, it's been great being able to call my colleagues at other universities, be able to have conversations with folks like your good self, kind of just jump in and get after it. I'd love to be able to tell you what it's going to look like, but I think even with uh, two weeks knowledge, I, I'd be a bit naive to think I would have any idea of what it's uh, going to turn into, but I'm looking forward to building it, whatever uh, it ends up being. You know, that's totally okay. I've noticed that there's different styles of engineering. I think for me, I sort of start building something and I just don't know most of what it's going to look like until I kind of stumble into it and then it starts start taking shape. And I think there's a different style of working where you have to like write everything down and get every detail right before you start working. And it sounds like you're choosing the first one, which I totally get. And I think that gives you more flexibility and creativity to come up with something really, really interesting. Yeah, I'm just I'm just really nervous of getting it wrong. We've got the commitment and support of the highest levels of the university leadership. I want to sort of measure twice, cut once. I know that my prior efforts were a little more kind of cowboy. And I guess maybe just 
big, older and bruised. I'm sort of nervous to sort of make grand claims. But there will be some cowboy stuff going on for sure. I just know it. I'm, in fact, I'm kind of already doing it. So it's, I think it's a little bit of both. It's sort of chocolate and peanut butter. Yeehaw! <laughs> and I can also confirm that it's so good to have you back. So a question I have as someone who isn't an affiliate of MIT, do you have any vision for how we can work together? So how MIT can work with the larger HPC or research software or just software engineering communities? I'll just be radical candor. I'm just reading off my screen. Today at 12.44 p.m., I get a note from my team with a GitHub URL that says flux-framework. And so for listeners to this that may or may not know, Vanessa and her team are deeply involved in these types of technologies. I, I want to be a place where we can try out some of this stuff. MIT's heritage as, a, as an engineering school, not everything I need to do has to be buttoned down and you know rigorously controlled. I, I really want to get Bag involved with the research software engineering community. I know that the institute and the characteristics of our institute will help drive innovation. And also I'm at a point in life where I know that if I don't reuse existing quality systems and attempt some kind of not invented here approach, I'm, I'm doomed to repeat the failures of the past, right? And so, you know, without sort of blowing smoke, you know, it's, it's very important and also, you know, resources are tight everywhere. It's not as if uh, I've got a giant gold bar I can, you know, carve off little chunks to uh, to build an organization. And I'm also very keen not to have to build an empire when we already have a giant community of highly engaged research software engineers and scientists that are, are doing, quite frankly, you know, the Lord's work. So that's that's my plan and I'm kind of going to stick to it. So more as it comes. That is a good plan. And I don't normally mention stuff that I work on because it's kind of weird to do that in my, in the podcast I run. Sorry. But you did mention Flux and I just have to give a shout out to the Flux Framework Project. I absolutely love developing for this project. You know, we re I recently added it to Reframe, so for, for testing, Snakemake. There's a PR for Pavilion 2 for anyone that uses that. We have containers. We have a Flux operator in develop that's worked with Kubernetes and other Kubernetes integrations. Like the team of people is just one of the best software engineering teams that I have been on. And it's, as you, as we kind of talked about earlier, it's just been so much fun. So there are lots of positive things in the future happening for Flux. <laughs> that's that's exciting to hear because I, I want to distill all of that and to use your orange squeezing analogy is to sort of squeeze out all of the goodness that you all have made and, and, and put together. I think, you know, as an overarching strategy for center leaders is to reuse, embrace and extend. So, yeah, could be more exciting. That's great to hear. Absolutely. So we are coming up on time. I have just a few more questions. The first thing I want to ask is something that I saw on a show online. What is your unpopular tech opinion? Oh dear, this will probably get me in trouble, but I, I'll, I'll go for it. This may be years of experience and also getting stuck in, in one's ways. I'm very, very concerned about system initialization software. So there has been a move to try and I assume initially reduce complexity of the legacy BSD init framework for booting computers. The reason I'm concerned is that 
we're starting to bake much more into software such as, and not to call it out particularly, but I will because you said unpopular, System D. It's a great engineered piece of software. I personally feel that it's going to, and if it hasn't already, gotten so big and so unwieldy and so confusing uh, to as sort of diminish the real kernel of what the initial intent was. And we were talking earlier about unintended consequences of software. When your initialization demons to effectively instantiate a computer image are more in, more complicated than the underlying operating code, I see that as a challenge. And, and I, and I want to sort of caveat that a little. When we engineer software and systems, it's the, and this is, again, personal opinion, the lightest touch possible always ends up as being, you know, one of the most sort of elegant solutions. I think the fewer lines of code and the fewer data paths through any operating code or algorithm or computer system ends up with a much more delightful experience. And I'm I'm very, very concerned that huge amounts of effort are being built into software that is ad addition to the actual core mission of what that software actually does. And so when I peel back and look at uh, orchestration frameworks and things like Firecracker, which is you know, this very lightweight computer booting infrastructure, I feel, and this comes back to my earlier conversations about computers draw a lot of energy every extra piece of software that's doing something that is maybe not necessary to function, to me personally, I feel is an additional burden on our energy budget, on our staff and FTE, and on our training and, and ability to be able to do good science. Um, and so it's, it's just a sort of a personal pet peeve. And, and I hope anyone who's involved in the system D community takes this for what it's worth. I think it just does that need to be in the initialization script for a computer is my only kind of question that you should always ask yourself each day. That's a good question. So this next question is a bit tongue in cheek and I don't expect you to answer, but you can kind of come up with maybe a creative answer. Who is HPC guru? <laughs> that is awesome. So I remember taking a job with Nicole and Tim at the next platform, and I was convinced it was Tim. I was like, got to be Tim. And we had a few beers. It's not Tim. Well, if it is, he's a remarkable individual, even more than uh, his ability to uh, write prose of, of high performance computing. For a long time, I think everyone's convinced it was Andrew Jones now with uh, Microsoft. He protests too much. And my, my actual theory of who HPC Guru is, I feel we're all HPC Guru. And I, I don't say that sort of tongue in cheek. I, I think it's very important that we sometimes have anonymous folks in our community who are able to speak freely. I think one of the great things about the Guru account is that it doesn't shy away and it doesn't falter in being able to expose some of our dirty laundry. And, you know, it can be kind of contentious and, and interesting, but I think there's a, a need for a, a sort of an, an industry lady whistledown or something, I think was one of the TV shows recently that uh, had this sort of anonymous reporter. It's also a great fun kind of community thing. So long live HPC Guru, I still think it's, it's all of us, or to be really pushed, I think it's a cadre of individuals who uh, help feed the Guru knowledge stream. I, I don't think I got anyone in trouble there too. 
I'd really hope it was a woman more than anything. That was one of the things I most would like to see, that it's not some old grey bearded guy, but it probably is. Long live HPC Guru and Audibots. Yes. <laughs> Final question. You've been in Boston quite a bit of time. What is it about Boston that has kept you there? What do you love about Boston? Oh, yeah, it's kind of an easy question to answer. It's just a hotbed, right? I mean, in the sales business, in computer sales, it's like a kind of a target-rich environment. You've got life sciences, the hyperscalers have moved in. You've got all of these top quality universities. I mean, we were able to partner with many of them to build data center infrastructure out in Western Mass. The sports balls are just amazing. I like watching American football. It's taken me 20 years to get a rough idea of how it gets played. The community is is huge. There's also, you know, events seem to happen a lot in Boston. It's a natural gathering place. It's got history and it's and it's kind of quirky and it's just got this sort of community about it that I'm really grateful for everyone in you know Massachusetts and the Boston area in particular to have sort of made it home. Um, it's it's a great place for Michelle to be to paint you know and take trips out and uh, we took our very first trip over to Nantucket. We got on the the high speed ferry. It still takes an hour to get over there, but it's fast. It was like being sort of James Bond or something. It was, um, you know, it was great. And, you know, you sort of see the heritage and history. It's it's quite a special place. And it's the coolest thing, I think, is is watching TV shows and movies and being able to spot landmarks. <laughs> it's really quite nice. But yeah, love it here. Wouldn't change it for anything. It's a really great place to spend and and we enjoyed it so much that, you know, we became citizens and we we vote and we care about, you know, the community to the point where our local town is building a, a new library and trying to sort of support that and so forth. So it's good. James Bond on the ferry. 007 <laughs> the ferry. episode coming out. And then he sees uh, that, that rock that's in Boston that's hugely disappointing. It was a little smaller than I was expecting. Yeah, yeah right. I, th I think. I think most of us are kind of disappointed. So James, it has been such a pleasure speaking with you on Developer Stories. You are such a powerful voice in our community and we are super glad to have you back and excited to see you continue with your vision, your passion at MIT and looking forward to seeing what you come up with next. Uh, bless you. Thank you so much for having me. I had great questions. I, I love this conversation. This is uh, this is what it's all about. And I've been listening to all of your other interviews. You're doing a phenomenal job for the community writ large. So thank you. Thank you, James. <laughs>